Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. As we near the one-year mark of this pandemic, the experts are now debating if the COVID virus can be likened to a wave or a forest fire, with variants across the country threatening to roll us back into lockdown and dampening spirits everywhere. Women especially are watching this news with increased trepidation, since we've already been carrying a heavy load and are unsure how much more we can endure. In fact, my first guest today shares that only 7% of us claim to be doing well. Erica M. from M & Co. joins me to share details on a survey her company conducted recently that highlights some disturbing trends amongst moms, which includes, but is not limited to, less sex, more drinking, less exercise, and definitely more frustration. This is a must-listen for all women and anyone who loves a woman. Ann Brody has the biggest Saturday Night at the Movies ever to share, and all I can do is wonder, where is all this entertainment coming from? No matter, though, because TV shows and movies are bright spots in our lives right now, and this week you'll want to hear Anne's thoughts on Alan versus Pharaoh, a four-part documentary series about Dylan Farrow's shocking recollections with her adoptive father, Woody Allen. Plus, a look at framing Britney Spears on FX, and I care a lot with Rosamund Pike on Netflix. Samantha Kemp-Jackson joins me to discuss the N-word. And yes, you know what N-word I speak of. You will definitely want to hear Samantha's thoughts on free speech, whataboutism, and whether or not there is ever an acceptable time to use that word. Would you ever suspect that systemic racism could show up in how we treat breast cancer in this country? Well, as we are all learning, systemic racism is insidious and shows up in everything. Dr. Paula Gordon is one of Canada's foremost experts on breast cancer and joins me to share how breast cancer affects women of color, how our system is currently failing them, and what we need to do to change it. If you now consider what's fashionable, your daily decision of what top to match with your flannel PJs, perhaps it's time for a fashion refresher course. Rachel Bristow is a fashion-savvy influencer who has spent the last year seeking out the best Canadian online shops to help us stay on trend and in a price range we can all afford. Finally, you'd be hard-pressed to find a person who hasn't been doing some deep thinking about their future and what they'd like to do with it these days. The result is that a lot of women are returning to school to either upgrade their credentials or pursue an entirely new passion. York University anticipates interest in its Masters of Leadership and Community Engagement degree program will be at an all-time high this year. And Professor Vidya Shah joins me to share details about this program meant to help shape our world into a better place. You'll definitely want to stick around to hear this one because the next application period doesn't open up until 2023. So now is the time. It's another full week at What She Said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 to reach doing? No, seriously, how are you really doing? Because a recent survey conducted by M&Co found that only 7% of women would describe themselves as doing well right now. So chances are good that if you're listening to this right now, you're part of the 93% of women who are struggling. And that is seriously concerning. So first, my next guest, Erica and M and I would like to pull you in for a virtual group hug because sister, you need it. And second, you need to hear the rest of these results from M&Co survey because you are definitely not alone. Welcome back to the show, Erica. Candace, every time I'm on your show, it strikes me how articulate and insightful and respectful of your audience you are. I just love, I love being on your show. You know, I, I, well, listen, I read this survey and I was just nodding my head through the whole thing because you and I are collectors of stories. So I think we've been watching this unfold in our communities since the very beginning. And I have to admit, I was still alarmed to read that only 7% of women feel they are doing well. Were you surprised by that? Yeah, I was surprised that it was that high, but I'm gonna tell you something even crazier. We posted 
that stat on the YMC Facebook page. And someone commented and said, why is this different now than any other time? And 25 people liked that comment, which is not normal for our Facebook page. So what that tells me is right now, women are struggling under the emotional and domestic weight of the pandemic. However, here's the twist. A lot of women feel like this is just an extension of our life these days. Yeah, it's that it's that continuation of the mental load, only it's it's become much heavier with this pandemic. Yeah. Well, here's a few things to consider, which we all know. I'm just going to say them out loud. So uh, of the women who took our survey, there were 700 Canadian women who took our survey, 50% of them hold full-time jobs, which they're doing from home while they're homeschooling or virtual schooling their kids. Now, you tell me, how is that actually even physically possible to be in two places at the same time? mentally and physically. Yes, they're in their quotation marks, home offices, and their kids are quotation marks at their school desk. <laughs> but basically, they're probably sitting beside the, each other in rooms attached, both trying to be productive, and probably neither one doing a very good job. At the same time, 30% of women said that they were worried about paying their bills. Now, Candace, this, this survey was done around Christmas. So imagine that that number is definitely higher because there've been so many more layoffs and research shows that a large majority of the people being laid off are women. So there's a huge pressure on women to put on a brave face for their families, to check in for, with their their children, their sort of take their emotional temperature and not just their children, but their partners as well. And in the meantime, they're, they're, they're crashing under this weight. I read a really interesting article this morning. Um, and I know this will speak to you because you and I are all about the language language matters that we're using in the media, you know, and Jessica Valente wrote this article and she said, you know, um, instead of headlines that read COVID forces women out of the workforce, maybe we should be, you know, making them more simple and truthful, like men's refusal to equally parent rolls back women's progress. <laughs> and I thought, yeah. We're angry about this because we're being affected on every front from work to home. Uh, we're putting everybody else's emotional health first and, and we're tired. I actually created this survey to reflect back to moms, first of all, so that they would understand that what they're feeling is weirdly normal right now. I did it because, you know, I have an agency, so I want to connect brands with moms. And the worst thing that a brand can do is say something that will really be tone deaf. And if brands are not understanding how we're feeling right now, they're in for a big wake up call. But there's another group of people who I didn't consider when I created the survey that I think needs to hear this. And that's employers and HR departments. Because I am not sure how deeply they understand what their workforce is feeling and two inch, I wanna be sure that the HR people and employers, bosses, whatever you wanna call them, are becoming more flexible and more compassionate and lowering expectations about productivity because that is not, it's, it's just insane to consider that your staff would be able to do the same amount of work under significantly different circumstances. Let's move away from the workforce then and let's talk about how this is affecting us between the sheets. <laughs> well, um, yeah, 42% of um, the women who responded said that they're having less or no sex. And I'm like, sister, I am with you. <laughs> Not to be too MI, but here's, here's why. Listen, we are stuck with our partners at our worst. Uh, shaving legs has become a distant memory for most of us. I mean, look at our hair. We haven't got our hair cut or have been properly, let's call it groomed 
and I'm not just saying the women, I mean the men as well. We're ready right now. Some of us don't shower with the same frequency because we're not leaving the house. So there is nothing sexy about this. We're stressed out. And I think stress probably limits our randiness, if you will. And the kids are around all the time. There's no time for a quickie or a place because you hear mom, 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 <laughs> sometimes dad. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I thought that number was actually quite low. I thought it would even be higher. Interesting. So was there anything else in the survey that caught you off guard that you didn't see, see coming? 75% of moms say that they're using social media more. Now, uh, that's not surprising. I mean, we're locked down. So it is a way of, you know, finding your tribe, building community, conversations, etc. Also finding information. And the other statistic were about vaccines. So I think 31% of moms said they were not sure if they would be getting the vaccine. So there is a correlation here, Candice, where right now scientists, researchers are saying that there is something called an infodemic happen right, happening right now, which is a pandemic of misinformation using bots, lies, fake profiles, and people trying to cause chaos in the world. They're spreading misinformation about COVID uh, and, and about the vaccine right now, even though these vaccines have been tested, probably they're showing the best results of, of um, based on a vaccine that was built, what people think in just a year, which is not accurate, accurate because these vaccines have been in production for years and then went into you know, hyper production and uh, studies in the last year when COVID hit. But scientists are very worried that people are not trusting the science. So all I can say as someone who has been working with scientists and researchers over the last four years about information and misinformation is to get your information from trusted sources. That's going to be our next battle is fighting this disinformation and misinformation online. Uh, so Erica, as always, I thank you for bringing this incredible information to people. Uh, where can they find out more and get the full results of this survey? Oh, yes. They can go to MNCO, which is my agency, ehmco.com, and look under our work. And we have all the results there and uh, you can see all the details etc and feel free to reach out to us if you want more information wonderful erica i look forward to having you back again soon thank you thank you More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. thing you need to know about Anne Brody's Saturday Night at the Movies this week is that it's the biggest one ever. So you have to go to whatshesaidtalk.com to get all of the reviews. But right now we're going to go through some of the highlights. So Anne, what can we not miss this week in movies? Oh my goodness. HBO, HBO Max, the um, Pharaoh versus Alan uh, docuseries. Oh, wow. You know, the, uh, the scandal over Woody Allen, he lost his career basically after having made a film a year for decades because allegations by one of Mia Farrow's adopted children was that he's a real child, that he sexually abused her and psychologically isolated her. And, uh, 
you know, there was a lot of doubt about it over the years because uh, it's Woody Allen. He seems so gregarious and fun and nice. But these documentarians go really deeply. They have interviews with Mia, Ronan Farrell, her son, who is also a highly respected journalist, and uh, archival footage. And I, I got to tell you, uh, changed my mind. Dylan is now an adult, lives on her own, um, and she's she's coping with it. But it's it, honestly, the visuals you'll see will just curl your hair. But it's really good. It's disturbing, but you know, worth it to get an idea about what he really was. May not make it through the whole thing, but you might. All right. Well, and that's out now. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Uh, what else? Uh, so listen, I'm hearing a lot of buzz about framing Britney Spears. What did you think? Yes. Uh, huh. <laughs> Poor kid. What a life. She's, and I'll give you an update. She, she it was a conservatorship issue for many years when, since she had that mental breakdown and her father and a lawyer took over her, her fortune and her career and everything. And um, to her detriment, they, so many things that they did to her that was just uh, unacceptable. Um, and a recent court case this week, as a matter of fact, found the father guilty. So he is no longer conservator. But Brittany, you'll remember, didn't have a good time handling fame. There was that meltdown with her shaven head smashing a car. But you can understand it when you see this. The poor girl, she was vulnerable to begin with, but then to be exoriated in the media and tabloids and being constantly followed. It's no life for a young, a young impressionable girl. So you know, you know, fame, is, fame is not something I would wish on anybody to tell you the truth. No, no. However, I did think that these days, fame being mostly online, it's a lot better. You could become really famous and wealthy by staying home and not. And the paparazzi, there's not such an issue around them these days. So I hope that's, I hope that's true. That's my impression. All right. And so I care a lot is out. I I'm really, I'm fascinated with this one. I think uh, just from what I've seen, uh, Rosamund, Rosamund Pike it. is amazing. Um, so, and you have an interview with her. I do indeed. Uh, it's about, she plays a legal guardian, again, legal guardians who um, has elderly people that she has a judge, a friend she pays deem vulnerable. She sells their home and property with completely legally without their permission and puts them in care and does whatever she does with their possessions. So, uh, and she's a real shark in every sense of the word. And she, she, she does it on her own, but then a young man starts stalking her because he did that to her, to his mother. Now, Diane Weiss, who, who plays her current client is stuck in this home. She wants out. She can't get out. And she's surveilled, she's drugged. And these things apparently go on in the US. I mean, I don't know about here, but um, it's a, it's like a thriller. And I gotta say that Pike is unbelievable. She's just like a shark. She's got that harsh haircut and the spiky heels that she wears. And um, it's worth seeing. Peter Dinklage is in it. And so is Alicia Witt. So I, I think it's you'll enjoy it a lot. All right, so we don't have a lot of time left, so let's get to the last two, which I think are a little bit lighter for us. Blythe Spirit and Eight Out of Ten Cats. Yes, Blythe Spirit. You know, it's that old chestnut from 1945 with Rex Harrison and Constance Cummings, and it stars uh, Isla Fisher, Dan Stevens, and, um, oh, who is the other Leslie person? Mann. I don't remember. Yeah, yes, that's right. So a very wealthy English manor owner, is a widow. He remarries. The ghost of his dead wife comes back to get rid of the new wife. And I, I just have never found it very appealing. They're given dead makeup and it's, it's supposed to be funny, but I kind of find it a little off-putting. And But I must say that this version, even though it's got Judy Dench in it, is no good. No. Oh. Okay, so we're not watching that one. Let's move on no, then. Not. Eight out of 10 cats, Anne. Oh, that's good. That's All right. Good. It's a British series being shown on BritBox. And um, it's the nuttiest thing I've ever seen. The host, this 
guy in a suit and very seemingly staid will do a ribbon dance or they'll have this tension round where they'll bombard the panelists, all comedians, with light and sound and alarms. It's just nutty. And then one fellow actually gets lost in the couch. It's such a cheerer upper. It's that bizarre English humor that we all love so much. So eight out of 10 cats on all right. box. Excellent. All right, Anne, thank you. Uh, as I said, there's tons more this week. So people should go to what she, she said, talk.com to get it all. Thank you, Anne. Great. Thank you, Candace. Starting a war, screaming peace at the same time. All the corruption and justice, the same crimes. Always a problem if we do or don't fight and we die, we don't have the same right. If I were to make a reference to the N-word, you'd know exactly what word I was referring to. And since I count on the decency of the people who listen to my show, I'm also betting that you may have cringed a little, little just thinking about the full word. How then can it be justified when teachers and professors say the full word under the umbrella of free speech? And what of the myriad of songs and movies that use it as well? Is there ever a time that it can be used and can only certain people use it? Samantha Kemp Jackson, a successful writer, media commentator, public speaker, and podcaster, as you might expect, has strong opinions on this and joins me now to discuss. Welcome to the show, Samantha. Thanks for having me, Candace. So I got to tell you, even just talking about this makes me feel awful. Like, I don't want to talk about it, but we have to keep talking about it because it's the message is not getting through, right? That is very true. So it, it's really hard and sad to consider that here we are in 2021 and we are still debating whether or not this word should be used, particularly by people who are not Black. So I will say unequivocally that this word should never be used, full stop, period, that's it. Do not use this word. I, I, I'm exhausted from having to tell people this. I just had a Facebook uh, back and forth with somebody uh, who, you know, um, again, had that whole whataboutism. Well, Black people use the word in their songs. And so what's the big deal? It's a socially normative word was the phrase that they used. And uh, I would beg to differ. It is not a socially normative word. And there are many of us within the Black community who do not agree with the usage of this word by anybody. Right. And, and so, and I, I love that, you know, how you address the whataboutism of this is that it's not acceptable ever uh, for people to be using it. You have an article coming out in Chatelaine uh, that addresses the use of that word, though, in our education institutions, in particular, a high school and a university. How did those stories um, affect you when you heard them? Well, they affected me in the fact, uh, in the respect that, again, I was asking myself, why on earth are we even debating this? So in those instances, uh, the N-word was used within a classroom educational setting, whether it was a university, there are also instances of high school teachers using them. And the excuse that uh, is being fallen back on in some of these situations is that it's academic freedom and uh, those in academia should have the ability to use the verbiage that they feel is appropriate or necessary within the context of the classroom. Now, that that alone is completely incorrect. I don't believe, and I will argue, um, I would argue that uh, irrespective of the context of the class and the subject matter, and even the citing of, you know, um, academic or classic literary texts, it should never be used. It should never be used. I experienced the usage of this word when I was a young child growing up in Toronto, when we we had to read books that use this word over and over and over. And I cannot tell you how painful that is for a person of color, for a black person, and particularly a child who doesn't know how to uh, manage their emotions and their feelings about being othered this way and also completely dehumanized. So once again, I will say unequivocally, do not use the word, do not use it in your common uh, um, 
conversations with people uh, and do not use it within an academic setting or work setting or any setting. So I want to just briefly touch on um, these books that are held up as literary classics uh, that use this word. How, how would you, do the schools need to remove them from the curriculum um, and maybe perhaps look at other new classics uh, and, and just sort of end this now? Well, yes, the short answer is yes. I would say that uh, some of the, the books uh, that I had to read back in the day, many <laughs> decades ago, um, I believe that they have been moved, not completely, um, but I believe in some Canadian schools, they have been removed. Um, however, there are some that still uh, uh, exist and still have the, the offensive word in it. And I would uh, suggest that those books be removed because you're causing undue pain to people who are supposed to be in an environment whereby they are uh, they feel that they're being lifted up not squashed by the pain of a horrible word um, I would also say uh, along those same lines that we need to look at more inclusivity and diversity within the uh, curricula as it relates to the uh, literature that we are providing so how many books in the Canadian uh, educational system whether it be elementary high school or post um, you know, graduate or postgraduate, uh, how many of those books that are mandated to be read are written by diverse populations? So people of color, Black people, Indigenous people, LGBTQ, you know, how many of those books, those literary um, uh, books are written by those populations. And I would say that there's probably not very many or probably not enough, because if there were, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And as well, the people who are there to learn would really learn the perspectives of those who can speak about living as a diverse uh, member of society, uh, whereby they are constantly having to explain these types of topics. As always, Samantha, you're wonderful to connect with. You have an article coming out on Chatelaine about this. But if people want to follow you online and follow your work, where can they connect with you? I'm in a few places online. You can find me on Twitter at SamKJ27, same handle for Instagram. You can find me on Facebook, Samantha Kemp Jackson, or my website, multiplemayhemmama.com, or my podcast site, ptanpodcast.com, which is short for Parenting Then and Now, which is the name of the podcast. Amazing. Thank you so much, Samantha. Thanks for having me, Candice. Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. You don't have to try so hard. You don't have to give it all away. You just have to get up, get up, get up, get up. You don't have to change a single thing. You don't have to try, try, try. When we talk about systemic racism, we often point to our education and employment institutions. But as we are learning, systemic racism, racism is insidious and it has taken root in everything right down to our breasts. A recent article on thinkglobalhealth.org highlighted how racism affects mammogram guidelines. And so I wanted to know more from a Canadian perspective. Dr. Paula Gordon is a leading evidence-based advocate for breast cancer screening and early detection. Her work has helped to lead to a marked decline in breast cancer deaths and joins me today to share her knowledge on how systemic racism affects mammograms in Canada. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gordon. Thank you. So this is something I think we probably, most women have listened to this and may have initially have a hard time wrapping their head around. I mean, this is breast cancer and mammograms. How can there be racism involved in this? So why don't we start with the issues that this the author initially started and we'll we'll talk about it in a Canadian through a Canadian lens. So she says too much emphasis is placed on avoiding overdiagnosis. She's uh, she's correct. The uh, recommendations for screening in Canada are largely based on the Canadian Task Force for Preventive Health Care. And even though they acknowledge that 
the most lives are saved by annual screening starting at 40, they recommend starting later and less often. Overdiagnosis is the theoretical possibility that a woman will be diagnosed with and treated for breast cancer, but die of another cause. In other words, not finding her cancer would have not affected her life. And I'll give you a silly example to start with. Let's say a woman uh, finishes her breast cancer treatment and the next week uh, she's in a car accident and dies. So if her cancer hadn't been discovered, um, it, it wouldn't have affected her life because she was gonna die in that car accident. The more realistic situation is that if you take a woman who gets treated for breast cancer, but then she gets lung cancer, which is aggressive and she dies of that, you might argue that it really didn't matter that we found and treated her breast cancer and she went through all that treatment for nothing. Now, overdiagnosis is more likely in older women because they're more likely to get these other life-threatening diseases like other cancers and heart attacks and so on. But overdiagnosis is much less common in younger women. So our task force did put much too much emphasis on that phenomenon. And they also, they, sorry to interrupt, they also really overestimated how much overdiagnosis goes on. And that's because they looked at some flawed studies that we don't need to go into, but really overdiagnosis, even in older women is, is only in the range of about one to 10%. Okay. So how does this affect women then, uh, women of color? Well, if you're going to claim that overdiagnosis as a risk of screening, um, outweighs the benefits of screening, and we'll talk about that in a second, then you can say that women shouldn't be screened. And when women aren't screened and their cancers aren't found early, those cancers grow and spread and many become lethal. And in uh, subgroups of women, including Blacks, Hispanics, and Asians, their cancers tend to peak earlier than in white women. In white women, the incidence of cancer peaks in the late 50s. In Asian, Black, and Hispanic women, the incidence of cancer peaks in the mid 40s. And we're so, not testing until 50. Well, uh, uh, there are three provinces in Canada that routinely screen women in the 40s, but seven do not. And so if you're an Asian woman living in one of those provinces and you don't get screened, your chances of a cancer growing and spreading before it's found are much higher. Okay. All right. So let's move on to issue number two then. She said using false positives um, as a reason to defer mammograms. Correct. Now, first of all, by even using the term false positive, our task force is giving it a pejorative. The better term would be um, a false alarm. When you say the word positive, it implies that we told you that you had cancer, but you really didn't. And that's not what happens with screening. When you have a mammogram and something shows up, even if it's not that high a likelihood of calling uh, becoming cancer, we recall the woman, we tell her, come back, we need some more pictures. Now, usually that's a couple more mammogram pictures. Sometimes it's an ultrasound. If it's actually suspicious looking, then we'll even uh, recommend a needle biopsy. But about 40% or more of those needle biopsies are cancer. And what they're saying is, well, we'd rather spare the women the anxiety of a false alarm than to find those early cancers. And uh, I know that I, I absolutely know how scary the sound needle biopsy is, but the vast majority of needle biopsies are no more uncomfortable than a blood test from the arm, honestly. Um, and I routinely ask all my patients after I've done their biopsy, so was that as bad as you were worried about? And the best, best answer I ever got, everybody says, no, of course not. The best answer was a woman who said, Dr. Gordon, I have shoes that are more uncomfortable than that test. So the task force, when they're weighing what they call the harms, I'm gonna call them the risks of screening with the benefits, they think that those false alarms outweigh the benefits of saving lives. Okay. Well, it's, I think it's up to a woman. Let, women should be aware of the risks and let the woman decide whether she'd rather be screened and risk a false alarm with the possible benefit of finding cancer early. Okay, so I, we're not gonna get to all these issues because we're not gonna have the time today and this is such a big issue, but I do wanna get to one more. So, uh, and then I would like to hear your thoughts on how we can uh, make this system better for women, all women. Uh, so the, the last issue I'd like to touch on is just sort of this over-reliance on mortality data. 
that's a really good one. Now the task force used only randomized controlled trials. That's a particular kind of medical study. And there were a bunch of them done between the 1960s and the early 1990s. And those are the only data that our Canadian task force looked at when they were determining whether screening saved lives. And because of the dated uh, uh, technology, don't forget all of those exams were done when we still used x-ray film mammograms. There weren't any digital mammograms. They were done at a time when treatment isn't as sophisticated as it is now. They under, underestimated the mortality reduction that can be attributed to screening mammograms. Not only that, there have been numerous modern studies of screening mammography, not randomized trials, they're called observational studies. And in fact, the largest published study ever was a Canadian study showing that women who have screening mammograms are 40 to 40 40 to 44% less likely to die of breast cancer than women who don't. Our task force ignored that. And so that's the mortality part of it. The other aspect is in addition to saving lives, the other important benefit, and this was well stated by the author of that article, is that when we find cancer early, women um, can avail themselves a much less aggressive treatment. So if you find a cancer early, a woman can have a lumpectomy and not need a mastectomy. If you find cancer early, she can have a, what's called a sentinel node biopsy instead of the old fashioned armpit axillary dissection. And axillary dissection has the side effect of lymphedema. That's when women get a swollen arm and hand and that's permanent. And when women have cancer detection early, nowadays many can avoid chemotherapy. So even if a woman is going to live just as long, whether you find her cancer earlier or late, which can happen it's in sometimes, the women whose cancers were detected earlier have a better quality of life for their remainder of their life. Okay. You're, you're, you're making me now. I, I avoided my mammogram last year, by the way, uh, because of the pandemic. <laughs> Uh, and now I'll be booking it. So let's talk about though quickly uh, what you think we need to do to make this a more equitable system for all women in Canada so that we are catching these cancers, as you said, early. Well, the best way would be for all provinces to screen all women annually starting at 40. And as you know, in Canada, healthcare is provincial. So it's crazy that a woman's access to better screening depends on her, where she lives. You know, we say it shouldn't depend on her postal code. But women in British Columbia, where I live, can start having screening mammograms at age 40 without a doctor's referral. Now, I'm not, I'm not as happy that they changed it in 2015 to say that, on, uh, that women can only come every two years unless they have a first degree relative like a mother or sister with breast cancer. And the reason for that is, and this may come as a surprise to many of your listeners, only about 25% of cancers occur in women with a family history. Most women know that if they have a mother or sister with breast cancer, they're at a higher than average risk and they should get their mammograms and ideally annually. But women with no family history also get breast cancer. In fact, 75% of breast cancers occur in those women. So all women need to be screened. The next step would be in addition to annual screening mammograms starting at 40, there's a whole issue of dense breasts, which we don't have to go have time to go into today, but women with dense breasts need additional screening over and above their mammograms. And that's what would save way more lives in Canada. Okay. All right. Listen, if people want to get in touch with you, follow along with you, where can they find you? Oh, I'm really active on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is at Dr. Paula Gordon. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was wonderful. Pleasure. Take your makeup off, let your hair down, take a breath, look into the mirror at yourself. Don't you like you? Cause I like you. Well, the sky is finally open. The rain and wind stop blowing, but you're stuck out in the same old storm again. Last February, many of us were still pulling together stylish outfits for a variety of occasions. 
fast forward to this year and the biggest fashion challenge we have now is deciding which top goes best with our flannel PJs. And frankly, we're all getting a little tired of it. But where are the best places to shop online? My next guest has your back. Rachel Bristow has a passion for affordable clothes and accessories, plus a drive to keep it Canadian. By bringing her followers on Instagram and TikTok, Canadian online boutiques and shops that will keep you feeling stylish AF, even if you're only moving between a Zoom call and the kitchen. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So you listen, I was talking to my daughter this morning. I was telling her I was going to be interviewing you. And she got very excited because she said, oh, it's so frustrating because I order something online and then I get hit with custom tax taxes and customs and duties. And she goes, suddenly it's not worth it anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. I've definitely experienced that where you're ordering something. Oh, it's such a great price. That's so cute. I can't wait for it to come. Then you get that email. Oh, you owe $50 of duties or you owe $50 in this. And it's not worth it then. <laughs> and, and as we found out at, at Christmas time too, it can take a long time for these things oh, to yeah. get here. Absolutely. And that's really frustrating too. If you're waiting for it for a certain time, definitely. Yeah. So is that what propelled you to start really seeking out all of these Canadian shops? Yeah, absolutely. So pretty much I would go on Google. I would look up um, a certain clothing item that I was looking for. And everything that came up was either like a big box store or an American boutique. And I found it really hard to find Canadian stores. So pretty much I started scouring through Instagram and looking through other boutiques that I found who were following other boutiques. And I just hunted really deep into Instagram to find a bunch of these Canadian boutiques. And you know what I love about you? And I found you on TikTok. I'm obsessed yes. with TikTok. I scroll through it in the middle of the night. Um, <laughs> I found you. And what I loved was that you show people how to wear this fashion. And for me, that's very important because I am, it doesn't come naturally to me. So I like to see what other people are doing. So let's talk about some of your favorite places to shop then. Absolutely. So the first place that I actually found is called the Moda Boutique. She's located in Edmonton, but she's online um, exclusively. She carries a lot of really cute pieces. I'm actually wearing her faux leather leggings today. She has some band tees that I really want to get my hands on and some felt hats that are really cute. Um, another one that I really love is called Parker and Poppy. She's based in Winnipeg. She's also online only. Her clothing pieces move really quickly. She launches them on Sundays, but if you want it, you got to get your hands on it right away because it's probably going to sell out. Um, and then the one I found most recently is called Breeze and Delilah. She actually reached out to me. This is something that I really love about shopping with these smaller Canadian boutiques. You get to talk to them on their Instagrams. You get to actually know who owns the store. And she reached out to me, which is really awesome. And that's how we found each other. So uh, she carries some loungewear, some really cute pieces for spring. And yeah, she's located in Ajax, Ontario as well. Yeah. So I just want to emphasize, you, you said that point, you know, you get to talk to uh, the people behind it. And I think that's really important for us to, to um, talk about because we don't get that experience with the big box shops. And as we know, that great big one uh, that everybody kind of flocks to and yeah. there's, you lose that personal experience and it's nice to have that connection with the owner and know that you're actually helping another woman Absolutely. Uh, through this very trying time. Is there anybody else that you really love then? Because I know one of my girlfriends said to me, her biggest frustration, she's like, I knew things were changing when I started to look up fancy casual clothes. Yes. <laughs> I have a great one actually for that. So there's um, a company in, she's in Toronto. She's online only as well. It's called Azure Fit. She carries um, things for working out, but she also has these track suits that I buy and they are the softest sweatpants and sweatshirt I have ever owned in my entire life. Really amazing quality and still affordable. Um, and she has really great pieces and colors. I have a chocolate brown one that I really love to wear, which it's a huge color right now, chocolate brown actually. And those sell out really quickly, but definitely worth waiting online at 10 a.m. for her to launch them. So. so before we end here, tell me, do you have any, any trends you're sort of looking at for the spring when we get out of like these heavy winter clothes? That's a great question. I think the biggest trend that you kind of need to follow is making sure you have a color palette of your own. I talk, a lot about, I talk a lot about this on my TikTok, actually. Having a color palette just makes getting dressed so easy every day. I never have to question what I'm going to wear. So instead of trying out all these super trendy colors, they might be really interesting at the time, but it kind of makes it hard to get dressed. So I'd say just stick to a color palette and then you're going to feel confident every day in what you're wearing. 
Okay, amazing. So listen, if people want to connect with you and find you online, where can they find you? So my Instagram is at rach.bristow. My TikTok is also at rach.bristow. And I also have a YouTube channel that I started making vlogs on and it's Rach Bristow as well. Okay, wonderful. And uh, you're going to be taking over our uh, Instagram stories. Uh, So I want people to follow us on what she said, talk on Instagram, because Rachel is going to be showing us all how to pull together some of these pieces from these great shops she mentioned, and she's going to be tagging them all. So please follow us there as well. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me. This was great. We're going to have you back again soon. Thank you so much. I had a great time. Let go of your umbrella, because darling, I'm just trying to tell with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Listen up to this truth. You are me and I am you. Every one of us is worthy. Baby girl, worthy woman. Every one of us is worthy. The pandemic has caused many of us to take a hard look at what we want our future to look like. In fact, more than 60% of Canadians are reporting they are evaluating their current careers and almost one in three are yearning to do something more meaningful and fulfilling post-pandemic. This drive for change is, as you might expect, resulting in many looking to learn new skills at school. Professor Vidya Shah is an assistant professor in educational leadership at York University and is a professor for the Master of Leadership and Community Engagement Professional Degree Program offered by the Graduate Program in Education. The first of its kind in Ontario, this program prepares graduates to advance in leadership roles in public sector organizations and communities with a focus on community engagement and innovation. Professor Shaw joins me now to share how you might find your calling at York with this program. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Candice. So, you know, I went back to school last year to pursue psychology, and I don't know if it's frequency illusion, but I feel certain that more and more adults are returning to school uh, to get, you know, to change their career, maybe just passion pursuits. Are you finding this to be true at York since the pandemic started? Yeah, you know, I think uh, what we're what we're noticing is that people are coming back for different reasons. They're coming back after various careers. Uh, and so it's this ongoing sort of uh, continuing learning model that's really quite exciting. So why do you feel that people are, um, you know, want to look for things uh, more fulfilling uh, post-pandemic? Is it because of what we're seeing in the world that's driving this this need? Yeah, you know, that's such a great question. And I it, it makes me think about the fact that, <clears throat> you know, we, we, we have this experience of the entire world changing, everything being put on pause. Uh, we see massive sort of um, racial awareness uh, and in particular, the impacts of um, Black Lives Mattering in, in, in the world. Um, and it really starts to put into to, to context and into question, why are we doing what we're doing? And so, you know, in some of the conversations we've had with students this year, and also among ourselves as faculty, actually, we've been talking about a number of different things. You know, we've been talking about this notion of contribution. Are are we making a contribution to the well-being of others in service to a more just and humane world? This this notion of context, you know, and in in what ways are are we engaging our work that can help remove the structural barriers to access and opportunities for some? This idea of connection, you know, are we in spaces in our in our, in our workspace that's really fostering the kind of connections that we want to ourselves and to others, and are we being challenged to grow in ways that are generative and exciting? And then the the last thing that we've been talking about is this notion of capacities, and you know, are there greater possibilities for alignment between our skills and our interests uh, and our daily work? And and if so. Um, how can we make that possible? And if not, where where might we go to sort of think through that? And so I think, you know, this program in many ways speaks to people that are interested in leadership, that are interested in community engagement as a way of thinking about these, these Cs, you know, contribution, context, connection, challenge, and capacities. 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, our humanity is driving us all to ask what we're doing here right now and, and how we can change these things. So how long is this program then? How long is the commitment? Yeah, so it's a, it's a five-term program and it's a part-time degree. And so we have both blended and, and online courses. So students will start in uh, May. So our, the, the next incoming cohort we have is May, 2021. And they will run the gamut until um, the fall of 2022. Okay. And so people can, obviously with this pandemic, I'm assuming that this is mostly online. So people across the country can apply. So it's generally um, a, a blended and online program. Uh, and so usually we'll have, you know, a combination of a couple of classes in which um, there will be some face-to-face -face classes and then the remainder of which are online. But given the pandemic, everything is, is, is moving online. And so we'll have a couple of classes with sort of a combination of asynchronous and synchronous, uh, a couple of classes that might be entirely synchronous, um, and then community placements, uh, which is a really big part of the experiential learning component of the program, that will happen sort of, you know, as we find out more about um, safety with, with the pandemic, we'll think about whether these placements are online or, or in person when the time comes. So, you know, people who are, you know, have jobs, obviously, you know, they, the, the perk of this is that it's part time, so it can be done from home while still working. Uh, where to, can they take this degree after, though? That's a great question. You know, we've had a lot of students share with us some really exciting stories about uh, jobs that they have gotten or promotions that they've gotten or uh, that they've changed fields entirely because, you know, they were in a practicum placement and realize this is the field that I want to be working in. And so it really is, um, it's while we don't necessarily promise that this uh, degree is going to lead to a specific job, what we've noticed is that the, the opportunities open up for students um, because what we're doing is we're sort of developing transferable skills such as community-based research, advocacy, writing, community engagement, policy analysis, leadership development, and those can be applied to such a range of areas across the public sector um, and, and, and community engagement initiatives. And so it really is exciting to see the number of students that are finding jobs that are more, that are more fulfilling, that are more in line with their skills and their knowledge sets, uh, and that are making really important contributions in the world. Okay, amazing. So if people want to uh, learn more about this program then and connect with uh, York University, where can they go? Right. So it's the Master of Leadership and Community Engagement Program. Uh, the best way to find us is on the Faculty of Education website at York University. So if you just go to www.yorku.ca front slash edu, so as an education, so edu. And then once you're in there, click on students, academic programs, and you'll see all the information there. Our application deadline for the uh, upcoming cohort is March 15th. So for those people that are interested, we highly encourage you to, to um, start the application and to reach out to us as a faculty if you have questions, um, just of clarification that you want some support with. Uh, definitely reach out to us and we'd be happy to engage. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Candice. That's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com. And be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to re-listen to this episode and find full details for all of today's guests. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.